Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we come to Judges chapter 17 as we hear from God's Word. As we come to Judges 17, we're entering the last section of this book. And so it's helpful to take a moment just to review where we are. Judges 1 and 2 had introduced us to the problem that Israel had started well but then failed to conquer the promised land, letting the Canaanites live among them such that each successive generation more thoroughly turned away from the Lord to the gods and the lifestyle of their neighbors. Chapters 3 through 16 then highlighted God's gracious salvation as he repeatedly saved his people and preserved his promises in the face of their sin through a series of judges. Now throughout those chapters we heard again and again that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, but that's a fairly general statement. It's easy maybe for our eyes to gloss over that and say, well, yes, they weren't worshiping God, but what kinds of things exactly were happening during those days? What did doing evil and worshiping like the Canaanites look like? Well, that's what we get in the final five chapters of this book as the author of Judges zooms in on two episodes showing us what unrestrained sin among God's people looked like. Today we want to look at the first of those episodes. We'll read chapter 17 and a portion of chapter 18 together. If you follow along, Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Micah said to him, well, stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes in your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. 
Now in those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. They said to him, go, explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, and they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to him, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, well, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land and behold, it is good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in, possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. I'm going to skip down now in the verses 11 through 26. Dan goes up and they come to the household of Micah. And they persuade the Levite to come with them and be a priest to them instead of to Micah. And they take his gods, Micah's gods as well. But if you skip to verse 27, we read, But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to them, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of their captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to confront our hearts and call us to yourself this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, these chapters in Judges can be a bit troubling at times, not just because of what happens, but because it feels like the Bible doesn't condemn what's happening. We don't read anywhere, this was evil in the sight of the Lord, or God sent a prophet and condemned Israel. The narrator just seems to describe a particular incident from 12th century Israel. Now, if you read the story carefully, it drips with sarcasm and subtle critique. But on the whole, the author of Judges is adopting the same strategy parents adopt sometimes. After having called out their child's sin and correcting it and disciplining it, they finally take a different tact. They simply record their child's response and play it back to them, hoping he'll be startled to hear what he sounded like and the ugliness of his tantrum from the outside. And that's kind of what these chapters are here in Judges, as the narrator has stopped calling out Israel's sin, has stopped announcing God's judgment, 
And he just describes what happens, holding it up like a mirror before Israel to show how bad things have gotten while there's no king in the land and everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And the main point we see today is that Israel is thinking like the Canaanites around them. So their actions and their worship seem perfectly reasonable to them, but are actually in deep rebellion against God's word. We see this play out first in chapter 17 in the life of Micah from Ephraim. It's a case study of a man who does not wake up feeling evil, but who he still believes in the Lord, in fact. And what he does seems normal, even good and spiritual to him. But his actions are driven by the expectations of the culture around him, not based on God's word. The camera opens on the scene at first as Micah tells his mother, hey, you remember that 1,100 pieces of silver that went missing? Well, I took them. I'll give it back. Apparently, Micah thought the quick cash grab of 1,100 pieces of silver would be a very reasonable action until his mother called a curse down on it, and then he had second thoughts. We might expect that his mom would give him a bit of a rebuke, maybe call him to repentance, but instead she blesses him. After all, she wouldn't want a curse to sit on her own son. Then she says, I'm even going to dedicate some of this money back to the Lord to make a carved image. Now, given the second commandment where God says, you shall make no carved image, this might seem to be a nonsense statement. But of course, this is exactly how the Canaanites honored their God. This statement would have made perfect sense to a Philistine or a Moabite. And Micah and his mother's worship reflects what makes sense to them in light of the world they're living in, even though it goes directly against God's word. But then we find out this isn't an isolated instance. Micah actually has a whole collection of religious objects. He has a shrine in his house, which was against God's word. He had his own ephod to ask God questions, which was also against God's word. He's something of a connoisseur of household gods gathering images of as many minor gods as he could, which, of course, was also against God's law. And he ordains his own priest, or sorry, he ordains his own son to be a priest, which was also against God's law. So how do we make sense of a son who steals from his mother, a mom who blesses him for being the one who stole it, a dedication to the Lord through a carved statue, and a man very concerned about the Lord, but multiplying idols in his house. Well, verse 6 tells us how to make sense of it. We read that in these days there was no king in Israel, no spiritual leader who would proclaim what is right and punish what is evil, no leader who would guide the people in obedience to the Lord. And the result was that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this diagnosis, there is no king in Israel, everyone does what is right in his own eyes, is going to be repeated four times in these last five chapters of Judges. And the point is that when we base our decisions and our actions on what seems right to us, rather than what is specifically given to us in God's word, we are unmoored from our solid foundation of the truth and at risk of marching straight into disobedience, sometimes without even realizing it. On verses 17, 7 through 13, we meet this Levite from Bethlehem who decides to set off and seek his fortune, and he meets Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah is delighted. See, he knows that God really likes Levites to be priests. 
And he thinks, hey, if I offer this Levite a salary, a parsonage, and a clothing allowance, maybe he'll be my own personal priest, and then God will really bless me. Of course, Levites are to be priests, but they're supposed to serve God at the tabernacle, not individual Israelites in their own homes. And they're supposed to point people to God's word, not help them take care of their collection of household gods. Here is the Levite also doing what is right in his own eyes rather than following the Lord. I think Micah's final comment is telling, I have a Levite as priest. Now I know the Lord will prosper me. Again, this is exactly how the Canaanites worshiped their gods. The goal was not to worship and obey their gods because they were worthy of it. The goal was to do what the gods like in order to convince them to bless you. Micah and his mother seem to be multiplying those efforts. For a time, it even feels like those efforts are going pretty well. Micah is clearly wealthy. When people visit the region, they tend to stay in Micah's house. He's got an impressive religious life. But enter chapter 18, and things stop going so well for Micah. Because here we see what doing what is right in your own eyes looks like on a corporate level. We meet the tribe of Dan. And it says that Dan was seeking an inheritance to dwell in because they didn't have one. Now, alarm bells should be going off in your memory there because Dan was absolutely given an inheritance. It's described in Joshua 19. But Judges 1 told us that Dan was the least obedient tribe in Israel and that they had taken nothing of the land that the Lord had given them. And so having failed to take the land God gave them, they go out to seek their own land. And chapter 18 is told as a parody of the conquest. All the language from Judges and Joshua and Numbers is used here, but it's used not for the promised land, but Dan's own efforts to do what they want to do. They send out spies to spy out the land. The spies return and bring a good report. Then they go up boldly and take the land they spied out. It's exactly the way the conquest was supposed to happen. Except that they do it to a peaceful, unsuspecting city that's not in the promised land. Again, this makes great sense if you're thinking like a Canaanite. The Canaanites would go and take cities that were better for themselves all the time. But it's directly against God's word. See, God had given his people an inheritance in the promised land because of his promise to Abraham and because of the wickedness of the Canaanites. But outside that territory, Deuteronomy 20 gave particularly inst- uh, particular instructions regarding peaceful cities outside the promised land. And Dan throw those, throws those instructions out the window. The narrator describes Dan's bold conquest here with all the sarcasm of going up to a bully and saying, boy, that was a really courageous move you made to beat up that first grader and take his ball. Now, in the course of this action... I think the narrator even gives a final dig at Dan in verse 29. If you look down at verse 29 of chapter 18, you'll see Dan renamed the town Dan. But what does the, what does the narrator say? He says they renamed it Dan, but the name of the city was really Laish. In other words, Dan, don't think this is your inheritance. Don't rename this after yourself. This is really Laish. Well, here we have the tribe of Dan on a corporate level doing what is right in their own eyes. In the passage we we skipped, Micah tries to confront Dan and say, what are you doing taking my gods? If you take my gods, I don't have anything left. Which is, of course, a fairly ironic statement in and of itself. 
If your gods need your protection and can be just taken by any passerby, they're really no true God. And Micah's religious efforts are exposed. But it also exposes the problem when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. If everyone does what is right in their own eyes without any standard of right and wrong, not only is your worship at risk of being false and unbiblical, but everyone is exposed to the abuse of power at the hands of whoever is stronger. Here Dan is stronger, and Micah goes off home empty and defeated. Now, I think as we come to the end of this chapter, it's important to answer one question, because maybe we would be tempted to cut Israel some slack. We would say, yes, they're not worshiping properly. Yes, they're not doing what they ought to do. But it's been 300 years since God brought them out of Egypt. Maybe there is no good place to worship anymore. Maybe there's no good guidance for how to live and honor the Lord at this point. But the author won't let us go down that path. Because do you notice the author's final comment in verse 31? Look down there. The author says, They set up, that's the tribe of Dan, set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. In other words, Micah and Dan were worshiping Micah's carved image, but all along the house of God was right there in Shiloh. In fact, the book of 1 Samuel begins by introducing us to a man named Elkanah who is from the hill country of Ephraim. Now, 1 Samuel starts right where Judges ends. Elkanah from the hill country of Ephraim may have even been neighbors with Micah or Micah's sons from the hill country of Ephraim. But what do we learn about Elkanah? Every year he journeyed to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to offer sacrifices to the Lord and to worship there. See, true worship according to God's pattern at God's ordained place was possible. But the question was, how important is it really to do exactly what God's word said? After all, having an image right here in my own house made worship far more convenient. That's what the Canaanites did as well. And so Micah and Dan and most in Israel were following that logic, doing what seemed right and good to them at the time. But the house of God was there at Shiloh. God's word was there calling them, and they neglected it. Now clearly this text condemns Israel for thinking like Canaanites, for worshiping idols, and for slaughtering peaceful cities. But I don't want us to miss the way this text calls us to examine our own hearts. And I think it does so in three ways. First, this story reminds us of why we are to worship God and obey him. See, Micah and the tribe of Dan view their religious efforts as actions they can do to get God's favor. As Micah says, hey, I got a Levite priest. Now God will really bless me. But this attitude is not just ancient or pagan. It can easily creep into our own hearts as well. We can begin to think God ought to bless us. I mean, I'm worshiping him regularly. I'm even tithing and serving in VBS. How could God let something bad happen to me given all that I'm doing? Or we begin to think, why isn't prayer working? Maybe God isn't good. After all, I've prayed and God hasn't given me what I prayed for. We begin to look at our actions as ways to get God's blessing rather than what we owe to our God. Fifteen years ago, sociologist Christian Smith conducted a survey of the beliefs of Christians in my generation across America. And he summarized the beliefs of my generation this way. 
He said, this Christianity is one that holds that God exists, but is not overly involved in my life. My job is to live a good moral life. And assuming I do at least a decent job at it, God's job is to keep me from suffering and help me solve problems and live a successful and peaceful life. That was the summary of evangelical beliefs about 15 years ago. Of course, sounds a lot like Micah's view of God. And given the expectations of our Western culture, we're not immune from them either. But Scripture presents a very different picture. If God is God, our Creator and our King, then worship is not a helpful routine when possible, like going to the gym. Worship is our duty. And to fail to give it to God is treason against Him. And it's not just our duty, but worship Fellowship with God, obedience to God is what we were created for. It is our purpose. It is where we find our greatest meaning in life and joy. And if that's true, then worship and obedience to God aren't just good things we get to as long as we're able. They are what we need above all else. It's what we read earlier when we read that first question of the Westminster Catechism, which reminded us the chief goal or purpose in life for all mankind is to glorify God and to find our joy in Him forever. So this text reminds us that we don't worship God to get blessing from Him or to keep things going well. We do it because He is worthy of worship. And worship is our chief goal and duty as His creatures. Second, I think this text reminds us of how easily our hearts can be deceived. See, I think Micah and the tribe of Dan really believed that they were making good, reasonable decisions. They were trying to worship the Lord. They were getting an inheritance. Those were good things God wanted them to do. But they were doing it in ways that went directly against God's word. I think we too can begin to think, hey, I believe in Jesus. I'm really doing my best. But hey, my decision just makes sense right now, especially given all that I'm facing. We even make good excuses. Excuses like, well, I prayed and I felt okay about it. As if sin will always feel evil. Or we say, I can't imagine that God would want that. As if what seems right in our cultural moment is the best judge of God's character and his word. Or we say, well, things are going well. I'm happy and people around me feel blessed. It's bearing fruit in my life. But at root, the question is not whether our actions feel right or wrong or whether things seem to be going well or not for us, but whether we are willing to prioritize God's word and obey it. I'm reminded of a cartoon one of you gave me from Dennis the Menace a few weeks ago where Dennis has dumped his bowl of food right at his mom's feet. And Dennis says, oh, mom, I wasn't being defiant. I just didn't want to do what you asked me to do. But see, that can be our life as well. God, we're not rebelling. We still believe in Jesus. That just doesn't make sense for me right now. And it brings us to the importance of the second question we read earlier. What rule has God given us to tell us how we are to glorify and enjoy him? The word of God contained in the scriptures is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So we must be in God's word. We must be with his people having the word preached to us or we can so easily slip into a convenient and comfortable Christianity or in a cultured Christianity that is disobedient to his word. 
Well, third, then, this story, I think, forces us to ask, how important is it to us that we hold fast to God's word and do not adopt the thinking and the actions of the world around us? I don't just mean doing things that look like the world around us. I'm not discouraging or encouraging us to think about buggies and alternate clothing. We're not thinking in that terms. We're asking, how serious, how seriously will you and I take the possibility and the risk that we could be pulled into thinking like the world? How easily, how great is the temptation facing us? Rabbi Zalman Lieb Grunfeld lived with his family in Prague in 1938. If you know anything about history, you'll know being Jewish and being in Prague in 1938 faced significant challenges. And in the rising tide of Nazism and their brutal treatment of the Jews, Zalman Lieb came home one evening and said to his family, I think we need to flee. I think we need to go to America where we will be safe. But his wife, who never disagreed with her husband, vehemently argued against him. For two days, they argued the question before the the rabbi finally agreed to stay. Sichaya, his wife, would not budge for one reason. In America, she said, it is too tempting for Jewish people to blend in with the nations. She said, I've seen Jews who go to America. They start dressing like the world, living like the world, adopting the expectations of the world, and losing their identity. Now, one might say, well, 20th century Jews were more committed to tradition than Scripture. Or maybe you say, well, they missed their Messiah that they were waiting for and were off base. But that misses the point. This is a people who had been through exile and back because they had adopted the ways of the cultures and the nations around them. And they were determined not to go down that path again. To the point that this woman would rather face the Nazis than risk her family becoming like the culture around them in America. I think about the way that I'm influenced by material expectations of our culture, about houses or vacations or sports or jobs or retirement, or by the opinions of what others think is crazy or, or wrong or offensive. And I wonder, would I be like Kaya, willing to risk my life rather than give the world around me a chance to pull me one inch from living in Christ, honoring Christ, and standing my ground on his word in every area? That's the question this text forces us to ask. Well, a final note as we close. This text says that the slow adoption of the culture and the confusion and the suffering of doing what was right in their own eyes came about for Israel because there was no king in the land. Israel desperately needed a godly king who would curb this idolatry and lead God's people in spirit and in truth to worship and obey him. Not long after this, of course, David came to the throne and David provided this kind of godly leadership for most of his life. But godly kings didn't last. A few hundred years after that, and Israel found themselves once again knee-deep in idolatry, exiled from the promised land, weeping, over the apparent victory of sin. But even in the face of the consequences of their sin, what did God say to them? He sent his prophets and wrote in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell secure. 
Zechariah 9, 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey. So when Jesus showed up, a descendant of David, entering Jerusalem on a donkey, announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand for all who would repent and put their faith in him, we find God's king that his people so desperately needed. And that king didn't just rescue Judah and Israel. That king came as a light for the nations so that anyone, any one of us, who would acknowledge our sin, know our sin, repent of our sin, and would come and name him as Lord and submit to him in faith, might be saved, might be find the salvation and the hope that they need. See, Jesus is the king who will guide us. Jesus is the king who will lead us in truth and righteousness. Jesus is the king who will bring us back to God and give us true blessing. And of course, precisely because of that, Jesus is the one who deserves our worship, our obedience, our trust, and all that we are. So may we come to him and give ourselves to him, our king, this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you've given us this story which highlights how easily our hearts can be led astray to think like the world around us, to act in ways that seem very reasonable and yet go directly against your word. So, Father, we pray this morning that we would worship you and obey you because it is what you have created us for. It is what we owe to you as our God and our King and our Savior. We pray that you would show us where our hearts might be slipping from your word. Call us back to yourself. And above all, Father, would you magnify the name of Jesus as King. Bring us to repentance if we have sin we need to repent of. Bring us to put our trust in him if we have not put our trust in him before. And renew our hearts with joy. Refresh our hearts with strength and hope in this Savior if we have trusted him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.